13. We talked uh, last week, some of you uh, weren't here, about the, uh, the parable itself that Jesus taught, and now we're ready for the explanation. Well, this is probably one of the best known parables, so I suspect you already know something about it, where the sower went out and sowed seed, and it fell in various uh, types of ground, and the, the uh, harvest uh, depended on the, the type of, of soil that the seed fell in. And uh, most of the parables are not explained for us. But this one is. This one actually, we're given a specific uh, explanation for the parable. And uh, so that makes it uh, especially uh, helpful to us. Uh, What other parables do you remember that were explained? Remember any others? Parable of the palace? No, it's not really explained. That's a good, that'd be a good trivia question. What other uh, what other parable was explained? About the parable of the tares, Matthew thirteen. There's a specific explanation given to that one, but it's it's not common. So evidently, Jesus really wanted the disciples to understand what this meant. Maybe he thought they wouldn't get it otherwise. And uh, it's a blessing that he did explain it because it probably gives us more insight. We might have gotten the general gist, but this really helps us uh, develop a deeper concept about what he's saying. So, Mark 4, 13 to 20. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? And how will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. And in a similar way, these are the ones whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. And the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it, and bear fruit thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. So, Jesus considered this parable, verse 13, to be fundamental. This is kind of the starting point of the parables. If you, can't get, if you don't get this one, then how would you understand any of the others? Because this parable really talks to us about how we understand scripture in general and how we apply it. And and he tells us what the seed is that's sown. What is it? The word. The word. What do you have to do with the word first? Hear it. Do you see how much emphasis there is on that in this whole story? <coughs> Look at verse 3. Listen to this. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 12. It speaks of all hearing they may hear and not understand. And then look at verse 15, when they hear. Look at verse 16, when they hear the word. Look at verse 18, who have heard the word. Look at verse 20, they hear the word. Uh, Fundamentally... The sowing of the seed is a process in which people hear the word. That's how the seed is sown. That's the only way the seed can be sown, getting people to hear the word. That seems like a rather simple concept, doesn't it? But that's where it all begins. You don't have any crop until you get the word in contact with the soil. may not have a crop even when you do that, depending on the nature of the soil, but you sure don't have one if you don't get the word heard. You might think about that when it comes to what's fundamental in our responsibility. Name me a convert in the New Testament that was converted without hearing the word. I can't do it. All of them, what they heard of God's message moved them to action. 
So that's the starting place. The word planted. Now, you think about the places where it's planted. Beside the road. We talked about that last time. Maybe kind of in the footpath. Where everybody walks. What does that do for the soil? It's compacted. Yeah. And what does that do when you put a seed on that soil? Yeah. Never really does anything. Just kind of lies there on the surface. I mean, talking to some people about the gospel is like trying to grow weed on the, in the passing lane of the interstate. How successful are we going to be? How successful was Jesus with those kind of people? Gee, part of this story is telling us why not everybody heard Jesus and responded. Why were there people Jesus talked to who never turned to the Lord? Well, because some of them had hardened hearts that never received the message. So, what if you tell about Christ to somebody and they just walk away and don't respond? How guilty should you feel? That's not our problem. (laughs) We may feel sad. We wish the person would respond. But when we plant the seed, it's up to the soil. And if you teach a hard-hearted, hard-headed person, nothing's going to happen. Comments and questions through verse 15. The next soil, the rocky soil. Now, this is where you've got a thin layer of good soil on top of a big rock, boulder maybe. And what happens to these people when they hear the word? They immediately receive it. Yes. And sometimes with great enthusiasm and excitement and emotion... This is great. And they take off growing. But what happens? The roots are shallow. And therefore... They quickly fall away or die. Under what circumstances? Yes. Physically, a little dry spell. It's a little hot. No, three or four days with no rain. The roots all along the surface, that top, thin top layer of soil dries out, and the plant that was going great guns suddenly just withers and dies. But spiritually, what happens? What comes along? Persecution and temptations. Yeah, persecution, temptation, affliction, difficulty, challenges, disappointments, discouragements. And this Christian that was doing great, you know, was just taking off and growing like a weed, so excited, so enthusiastic. And just a little something. What do you do about this kind of soil? Well, what do you do to keep yourself from being this kind of soil? Dig deep, I guess. Amen. You're going to have deeper roots. How do you get those? Study. Talk to God. Talk to God. What does it really take to have deep roots? Those two things are, are part of the process. What's going to give you deep roots? Okay. What's going to give you the rooting to be able to overcome the trials? Love the Lord. Love for the Lord. That's a good statement. Might be a different way of describing that. What about faith and conviction in the Lord? Where you really trust the Lord and you depend on the Lord. As opposed to this. Now there's several scenarios in this. This isn't the only one. But, but, But take this case. That I think is a common situation that can You've got somebody who has had some bad 
situations in their life. And say they're living next door to a wonderful Christian family who is really generous and kind and loving and spiritual. And this person is pretty down and out. You know, has observed that family, and there's a friendship there, and the family says, you know, we'd like to study the Bible with you, and the person's like, man, I need something in my life. So they study, and the person just enjoys that family so much. They're just such a nice family. They start going to church, and man, that church is so comforting. They feel good, people are nice to them, people are friendly, you know, the preacher, he preaches things that are encouraging and, and uplifting, and and people have just bent over backwards to be nice to them, and the person thinks, wow, I feel so much better. You know, and the person actually thinks, you know, I'd like to join up. And, and so they do. And pretty soon they want to know, what can I do to help? And so we put them to work, you know, doing this or that, and they enthusiastically, whatever they can do, you know, they want to help. And they're just so excited about what a great group this is. You know, I feel so good. And it just, it just gives you a sense of belonging. And, and uh, just nice to be with people who care about you so much and all that. See any problem with that person? What's the problem? Shallow. Why would you say that's shallow? They're really enthusiastic. They're really, they're really working hard. Not converted to. Yeah, their faith is more a matter of, man, they really like the atmosphere. It's not so much that they've grown deep conviction and commitment to to God, uh, an, an undying trust that His will is true and that you can count on Him and He'll be there for you no matter what and so you just need to do what He says in anything. It's more a matter they enjoy the group they enjoy how they feel. And, well, you know, they're quite okay with accepting some, you know, entrance requirements and paying their dues and whatever. I mean, that's what, you, that's what it costs to, to, you know, get something like this. Well, what happens to somebody like that when, oh, I don't know, a new preacher comes along who's a lot more boring? Or there's some problems in the church. You know, there's some people who actually show some bad attitudes. They they do some things that are pretty pretty hurtful, pretty terrible. Maybe there's some controversy and conflict and strife in the church. You know, or maybe in their personal life, you know, things kind of start unraveling. Things are going pretty good, but, you know, they have some family problems, financial problems, job problems, whatever. And suddenly, you know, they just, they're more down, and this church just doesn't feel that great to them anymore. And you take somebody like that. Now, to, the thing that the thing that's hard for us is, you know, they look like they were doing so great. What, what happened to brother so and so? I mean, he'd obeyed the gospel, and he just he's just growing like a weed, just involved in everything. Well, sometimes it's really hard to tell what the roots are doing. You know, I mean, you know, like you can tell about a plant what his roots are doing. That's the part you don't see. You don't really know if this person necessarily. Maybe there are some signs, but sometimes there's not. Do you know whether they're really studying and praying and trusting God and developing faith and conviction? There may be some things you can do to encourage that. But bottom line, it's it's the dry spell. It's the tests and trials and afflictions that show, you know, I thought this person was committed, but I guess they did, their commitment wasn't very deep. <laughs> Didn't last through this tough time. What about our commitment? What would happen if it really got tough? You know, what, what would happen if there were some real life reversals? Some real, what would happen if things in the church really went sour? And some of these people you really enjoyed started really being mean to you and hurting you. What if you got really disappointed because you found out somebody you really trusted living a double life or, you know, things like, what, what would you do? You know, in that situation, what happens if, you know, you kind of get caught up in some sort of sin, you know, and, and I don't know. Do we have commitment to the Lord? We're going to turn back to Him? We're going to do what He says? Or not? What do you think? Or the nice family next door moves away. Yeah, absolutely. 
when the nice family next door suddenly isn't quite as nice as you thought they were? You know? When the nice family next door falls away from the Lord because maybe their commitment wasn't what it ought to be. Whoa, that could really shake you. And that's where, I mean, you can't, you can't grow on somebody else's faith and somebody else's love for God. You know, it's got to be because you really are committing yourself. You're develop, developing conviction and depth. That's exactly what we need. Come on in. Chair there. There's a couple more if you go around. Here the other way. There's a couple chairs over there. Chairs. There's four space. We're in Mark 4. He's just sitting at his feet. We were just looking at Mark 4, verses 16 and 17. So that is really, you know, a challenge, is this idea of depth of root, and not just enthusiasm based upon superficial feelings. Because sooner or later, the test will come. And they will challenge whether or not we really are deep and convicted or whether or not we're just kind of caught up in the emotion of the thing. Comments or questions? Jeremy. How would, how would you tie James 1 into this with the trials and persecutions he mentioned? Well, if we do endure them, then they strengthen us. Um, in fact... I believe I'm right on this. Uh, some of you may have a better farming background, perhaps, Ken, than what I do. But um, I've heard that if, like, you plant corn, soybeans, wheat, and so forth in the, in the early spring, and you have a lot of rain, it rains every three or four days, all spring long, and even in the early summer, that's almost worse if it starts getting dry than if there was some dry spells, some longer periods early in their growth because then the plants put down deeper roots and they're able to withstand that. Do you agree with that, Ken? The corn does that. Yeah. So it would be actually be better for the corn if there was a little bit more adversity early on. Because the roots seek moisture. Yes. If they're irrigated all the time, they're not going to seek. Yeah, exactly. So you take the corn plant that's irrigated all the time. Uh, it's kind of a wimpy plant if there's ever a time that the irrigation fails. And it doesn't have the depth of root because everything was so easy for it. So really, if we'll have depth, some challenges and trials that we endure and remain steadfast, they actually help us. We'll develop more strength and more rootedness. Absolutely. That's it. That was a good question. <laughs> this house is haunted with uh, some mice, it seems to me like. I've always thought it a disadvantage to have mice in the house, but uh, I have some relatives that don't feel that way. So. <laughs> comments and thoughts on this uh, rocky soil? Kind of made me think of what we were talking about uh, last night over in Avon where we were talking about the uh, tower building the tower and uh, the king planning to go to war. Uh, it takes uh, planning and true commitment to see what it's going to take to serve the Lord. Absolutely. If you're just serving the Lord because it's the fun, convenient, easy thing to do, wow, it's not going to work very well. I mean, I would even say this. You can think about this. Churches that do really well, that are, fun, that are enjoyable, exciting, dynamic, great preaching, great teaching, friendly, encouraging people, that there may be some tendency for a lot of the members in churches like that to be shallow, churches that really have had it tough and there's really not much there that's so very exciting there's a lot of challenges a lot of disappointments and discouragements those that stick it out are probably a whole lot more resilient they're probably able to deal with a whole lot more things you know I think that's generally true and uh, 
So, count it all joy when you fall into different trials. <laughs> it's the same in dealing just in, in general in, with friends. You, know, you make a new friend, how, how exciting that is. So, like going to a new congregation yes. would be yes. a similar comparison. Oh, these are the greatest people. How many times have you heard that from someone that's gone to another congregation? It's the best. The greatest preacher, the best group. A few years later, so well, going. <laughs> we're going somewhere else. Well, because this other group is the <laughs> But the other thing you, you sort of mentioned, too, is that it's going to happen. You're going to run across a disappointment in the church somewhere at some time. Because if, you, if, you, if you're honest about it, think about it. You've been disappointed to somebody somewhere <laughs> on the line. That's true. So... You know, and if we if that's our goal, I mean, if that's our standard, is how uh, nice we feel about it, or how welcome we feel, then certainly not going to survive very long. Amen. Other thoughts? Well, you've got then the uh, weedy, thorny soil. Which we talked about a little bit last week. <laughs> you plant the seed, but you don't weed it. And, uh, like my experience with the corn, where I'd fight through the ragweed taller than the corn, the plants were there, but the ears, if they were there, were the most pathetic excuses for ears of corn you've ever seen. Just really ratty and runny, and a kernel here and a kernel over yonder, and that's about it. Why? Well, all those weeds just took way too much of the sunlight and the water and the nutrients and just sort of choked out the life and the fruit out of that corn. <laughs> so that applies to what kind of people? These are people who do they become Christians? Yeah. Do they do they do they continue? Do they endure or do they fall away? They're still Christians. They're still there. But what's happened to them? Puny. <laughs> Why? Preoccupied. With cares of the world. So much other stuff. Just so many commitments, so many interests, so many involvements, so many responsibilities, so much that just kind of suffocates it. You just get more and more stuff and there's just not very much left to devote to the Word. He calls it the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. You know, some of those other things may not be bad other things either. They may be fine things, but the more of them that spring up in your life, the less you got to give to the Word. I think that's where we're at. Wow. We may have a lot of labor-saving devices, but we sure do have a lot going on. And if you don't, if you're not careful, it's not bad stuff. We're not talking about going to nightclubs and bars and you know things like that. But we're talking about school and all kinds of school activities. We're talking about sports and all kinds of sports activities. We're talking about work and all kinds of work activities and all kinds of side jobs and second jobs and whatever. We're talking about community and civic opportunities and responsibilities and friend kinds of stuff and social events and wow, we just start multiplying then, you know, the TV and the internet and video this and that and the musical something else and why pretty soon just how much space does the word have left? What, none of it was immoral. Some of it was actually kind of good. But it was kind of much. What do you think? I think we sometimes brag and convict ourselves of this. <laughs> what do you I'm mean? just so busy. I can't get to bed before midnight because I've got so much to do and I you know, I have to run here and I have to run there and I'm just busy all the time. I just I'm just so involved and so busy. Well, shame on you. <laughs> 
Same on me. It depends on what we're busy with. Right. <laughs> yes. It's kind of almost, that's, that is kind of the American mentality now, isn't it? Yes. We just kind of... Uh, I'm busier than you are. <laughs> 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 yeah. I'm guilty. Uh, yeah. And, you know, seems like that may all be a status symbol, but it seems like the sort of thing that we pretty much all drift into. And some things we're busy about may be good. You know what I preached on yesterday morning? Going through Luke, I preached on Martha and Mary. Oh, Martha's tremendous, isn't she? She she was a great woman. She welcomed Jesus into her home. She really wanted to take good care of him. And she really wanted to be where Mary was, listening to Jesus. But she was distracted. She had too high a standards in too many areas. She was worried and preoccupied about so many things. You know you know what her problem was? She didn't have a single unified focus. There were so many things. What do you say about Mary? Mary has chosen the good part. She was a woman of one thing. You know, now, when you devote yourself to one thing, you don't get very good at those other things. But you get really good at that one thing. I illustrated it with the Olympics. I think I'm probably right about this. That most successful Olympic athletes are not highly diversified in their activities. You know, you don't take an Olympic swimmer who's also a cross-country skier and, you know, who also does figure skating. Why not? Because one's in the summer and one's in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they could do both, you know, summer Olympics, winter Olympics. But the thing of it is, if you're going to be really, really, really good enough to be an uh, Olympic star, it's all going to be one thing or things very, very related to that one thing. You know, you may do several swimming events, but it's all going to be swimming. <laughs> You know, it's not going to be swimming and curling. You know, it just it's not work. I mean, you just don't have enough time. If you want to be an Olympic superstar, uh, start at Keenan's age, and uh, and it's one thing, one thing, one thing, one thing. Now, I don't know. I'd never have much interest in uh, being becoming an Olympic superstar. <laughs> An idea there might be some other qualifications besides just one thing. Um, but there is one thing that Paul said, I do. One thing I do. Philippians 3. I think that was the one thing he needed to do. Now what do you do? What, what, what could I have done with the corn that was uh, being uh, sh- shaded out by the ragweed? Yeah, uh, uh, a well-placed hoe would have uh, done wonders. Uh, that would have taken a whole lot of time and effort uh, that I didn't necessarily want to put into that. And so we didn't, mostly. But that would have changed everything. You yank out the weeds. So what we've got to do, the only thing I know we can do when we're the weedy, thorny soil is is get rid of the competition. Jeremy. All of us have weeds. I mean, it's not just, you know, one day we're, we've got this bed full of weeds. They come up a little bit at a time. Yeah, they do. And so if you just pull them as they come up, it's so much easier than letting them grow and grow and multiply, and then you've just got this mess. You can still come back from that. You can. But it's harder than if you would just pull yourself and rein yourself in and get back to your single focus at the first point. Yeah, the... the, the, the longer those weeds stay in the ground, the harder it is to get them out. Yes. No doubt about it. Whether it's corn or life. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think these are tough things for all of us. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. How, how fruitful are we? How much are we really producing for the Lord? Is the problem that there's just too much other stuff? And, I mean, 
I appreciate it. Some of you I know relate to this personally, but it's probably better to give a, a kind of a secondary illustration, not somebody here. But um, I really appreciate it several years ago. And I think for good reason, overall, uh, I, think, I think very much so, when uh, there was a boy in the congregation in Salisbury who, uh, I, as far as I know, nobody had talked to him about this. He was going to be a senior in high school. And uh, he was probably going to be a starter on the basketball team. If not starter, sixth man, but I probably a starter. And you know, in Indiana, that's pretty important. And uh, North Harrison's basketball teams at that point were decent. And he decided not to play because he wanted to devote more time to spiritual things and didn't really want to be around some of the influences on the basketball team. And, wow, I mean, his whole family had played basketball on both sides of his family. You know, that was a very major thing in their culture. He had extended family members that would come see him play. And he wasn't sure that that decision would be overly popular. I don't think it was quite as challenging as what he thought it would be, but he made up his mind. It's not wrong to play basketball. But it may be wrong for me to play basketball. If basketball is kind of the thing that kind of starts choking out the word in my life, maybe wrong to do a whole lot of things for me. Because they're just too much. They're too, there's too many. They, they're too important. And sometimes what we may need to attack is the thing we love the most. I mean, you told the rich young ruler, sell your possessions. You know, I mean, sometimes we may just need to, to buckle down and get rid of the thing we really are, are letting compete for God's place in our life. Thoughts? Jeff Boyd made a point. Those at Avon, we had Stan Bullington come in and do a meeting on, on financial discipline a couple of weeks ago. And Boyd was just making the point that as you become more disciplined in one area of your life, it very easily spills over into the other areas of your life. And so as you discipline yourself in one area and try to get your focus back on God, it's really easy to spill that over and become more disciplined in other areas because it's a way of life. If that's your focus, it's easier to be disciplined. But as soon as you let one area go, it's really easy to let another area go, and then another area. And so he was just making that observation. I thought that was pretty true. Mm-hmm. Good point. Other thoughts? Well, along the same same lines of, uh, you, know, you pointed out that these other things that come into our lives aren't necessarily bad things in and of themselves. And uh, along that same sort of a line, you know, there's there's nothing wrong with, with say, you know, wood or metal or gold, but if you put too much emphasis into it, we have a term for that, and it's an idol. You know, and, and you know, there's nothing wrong with with playing basketball, or being in a club after school, or, or you know, or with having a, a good job. But when you put too much emphasis into that and, and that's where your focus is in life, it's a misplaced focus. And it's become your idol. Yeah, good point. <laughs> well, and, and particularly, you know, he may be stressing here materialism as a, as a common problem. I just have to read this because I thought this was a cool quote. I like cool quotes. (laughs) We're we're among a people who live a kind of -of hand-to-mouth luxury, never knowing where their next quarterly installment of taxes or the payment on the third car is coming from. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that kind of where we're at? (laughs) Man, we're just struggling to make ends meet. Yeah, or yeah, whatever. You know, fill in the blanks for yourself. But it's, it's that kind of, you know, uh, we just we just have so high a standards in being successful in this life. We want everything to have be top quality. We want it to look good. We want it to run good. 
we we want everything to be lined up well. We want to be successful. We want to be. We've got. I think sometimes I think this was Martha. She had too high a standards in areas that weren't worth it. My statement I commonly quote: "Don't give first-rate effort to second-rate causes." I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know. When we give the same degree of effort to something that doesn't matter, that we do to something that does. I was just teaching yesterday, Psalm 49. I've got a quote in my notes on Psalm 49. Apparently this is the case. This is kind of funny. But Psalm 49 deals with like the vanity of riches and materialism. And apparently there was a guy who came to Alexander the Great to show off the talent he had developed. The talent he, he had developed was the ability to, to throw a pea through a very small ho- hole in a board. And he, apparently he did it very well and was proud of himself before Alexander. And uh, to reward him, Alexander gave him a bushel of peas. <laughs> you know? now, that seems kind of funny to us, but it's too close to home to be funny. What are the things we get good at? Uh, I can think of some things that uh, probably make throwing a pea through a hole even seem a little uh, high class. You know, what, if, what about some of these gadgets we work with our thumbs and our fingers and get all sorts of, uh, you know, icons doing whatever they need to do? I don't know. I'm not very, I don't even know what the terms are. But it's like, wow! It amazes me not only that we, we uh, you know, we, we spend the time but then we get so caught up in it. We want to talk about it all the time. We dream about it. We write about it. We, You know, it's like, wow. Isn't it amazing how much effort we spend, you know, perfecting getting that pee through that hole. You know, I'm not against having some fun with whatever, but wow. Putting first-rate effort into second-rate causes is not a very wise move. And really, every cause that's not the Lord is a second-rate cause. Comments and thoughts. Well, how about the uh, final soil? What was it like? Good. Yeah, and you could tell it was good because it did what? Yes, that's the key. It produced fruit in great abundance. You know, this story is interesting. See if I'm right. I believe every person in the world is in this story. Wouldn't that be true? You fit in one of these four categories. Every single person. And I suspect when we get to the end of this story, Jesus wants us to ask one question. What's that? Which one am I? Which soil am I? Good question to ask. Comments and thoughts? Is it possible that at different times in our lives we may be each of those soils? Perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can do a little uh, root deepening or weeding or softening of our heart or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think that's what he wants us to do. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you're in one soil, I mean, like, change soils, do you, like, just reproduce another seed? Well, you start responding to the word that you're hearing differently. You know, if you deepen your roots, you start having conviction and faith in the word, and it makes a difference in your life. Or you weed things out, you start giving a whole lot more attention to the word. It's a really good parable. I I like it a lot. And uh, most people do, I think, but... uh, there's plenty of other applications that could be made, other angles that could be taken on it, but it seems to me like this is probably the primary points Jesus is trying to, to uh, teach us in this. How about 21 to 25? This is uh, not as well known and kind of curious. 21 to 25. And he was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed? Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? 
For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. I bet Jesus got a chuckle now and then in some of his teaching. Uh, when you buy a lamp, where do you put it? And not under the bed. <laughs> Why would you not put the lamp under the bed? Yeah, it, the function is to give light. Unless you're looking for something under the bed, it's not going to be very helpful down there. You generally put the lamp where you can see the, everything in the room from it. Uh, it's kind of a no-brainer there. And Jesus intended for us to see it that way. The question is, why is he telling us where to put our lamp? And if we're not careful, we'll miss this one. What's the lamp? think so in the context now you know why we sometimes miss this one because you know God uses lamp and light Jesus used that analogy to make other points in other passages we can be compared to the lamp in terms of our influence and our letting our light shine but here the context is the word and the word is a lamp and a light, Psalm 119.105. And so, what's that telling us we're supposed to do with the word? How do we let it shine? Put it on a lampstand. Which means? Which means we're doing something to uh, put it where others can see it. Not just where others can see it. Yeah. I mean, if the light, if, if we're going to let the light shine, the light of the Word shine in us, for us, we're going to have to know it. We're going to have to open our Bible and read it. it. It won't give us any light, any clarity, any illumination if it's closed. You know, if it's the Word, then the Word's got to be read and studied and meditated on and, and memorized or whatever for us to allow it to enlighten us. So I think this is saying... Hey, study your Bible. That's how it's going to lighten, enlighten you. Comments and thoughts on that? We tend to do is we, uh, we, try, to, we try to do it on our own, and then we, uh, it's like we're walking down the path, and then we put, we hide our lamp, and then try to look out to the darkness with our own eyes. And we don't let the lamp uh, see the obstacles that are in front of us. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that he's addressing in verse 22 the fact that we think there are areas of our life that it doesn't apply or areas of our life that we don't want it to expose? or Maybe so. 22 is difficult for me. Uh, it may be that Jesus is saying his word is intended to be revealed and to come to light. It's something that's been hidden, that's been secret, that hadn't been revealed, but now it's being exposed, and that's God's intention. So that's another option. But I'm not sure about 22. It's really difficult, certainly. You see, though, this same consistent emphasis on hearing. That's really the point of the lamp illustration. Look at 23 again. Look at 24. You're, you're emphasizing constantly the importance of hearing the word. And, and he says in 24, take care what you listen to by your standard of measure will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. Now what that's saying is, the more attention you pay, the more understanding you'll get. The more you hear it, the more you'll learn. Isn't that what he's saying? What, what, whatever, whatever measure of effort you put into your study, it's that measure of growth that you'll get out of it. You know, somebody, maybe this is a preacher tale, but reportedly came out and told the preacher, 
man, I'd give half my life to know the Bible as well as you do it. And he said, well, that's probably about what it would take. You know, I mean, if we don't invest in the Word, how would we ever expect to learn anything and for it to help us? And it's one of my pet peeves is it's, it's a shame that we people who say we believe this is God's message and we ought to read it and study it know, you know, the headlines in the newspaper and the sports statistics of our favorite ball players and a whole lot of other things better than we know the Word. That ought not to be. We ought to know this book. You know, we're always saying, well, I'm just not as smart as you are. I just wish I could, I wish I could remember things. I wish I could learn. Well, granted, we're all different mentally. We're all different how we learn and all that sort of stuff. But you know, mostly, God will give us the understanding. We'll put in the effort. You know, don't say those things until you really worked at it. Most of us manage to learn the things we really want to learn. If we don't want to learn them, we don't. But it takes effort. So he says, take care of what you listen to by your standard of measure. It will be measured to you and more will be given you besides. For whoever has to him, more shall be given. Whoever does not have even what he does, what he has shall be taken away. And the more you learn, the more you can understand. And when you don't pay any attention to it, you won't even remember what you did learn. Comments and questions. This really ties in with the parable that he was talking about. Exactly. Yeah. It's cool. We need to know the text of the Bible. <coughs> I beat on different drums as I get older. And, you know, here's something that I hear a lot. I just don't know how to study. Can you tell me how to study? Well, I usually fall for the bait, and I'll tell you some things I think help you in studying. But, I think we mislead ourselves when we think that the main point is technique. It's not. It's time and effort. Just, if, if you don't do anything else, just read it. Read it, read it, read it. Know it. I was just the other day teaching in the Wednesday night class at church, Hosea 11. <laughs> and it's just interesting to me. You know, Hosea could have written several things. But he writes, God speaking, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? Something like that. He said, how can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboiim? You read that? Hosea expected them to know what that meant. How can I treat you like Adma? How can I, I deal with you like Zeboiim? Anybody know what Adma and Zeboiim are? Yeah. Mindy does. What are they, Mindy? They're destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, they were the cities of the plain destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. You find that out, of all places, in Deuteronomy 29, 23, if I'm not mistaken. It says it. But, I mean, who, which of us ever bothered to look at that carefully and to kind of keep in our head, oh yeah, that's Admin's Zeboiim. Hosea just, he could have said, how can I make you like Sodom? How can I treat you like Gomorrah? We'd all understood it. He expected them to, to know who, what Adam and Zeboiim were. Because there's a reference to him in Deuteronomy 29. Wouldn't you know it? <laughs> it probably makes you remember it better. You won't forget Adam and Zeboiim now uh, when he does that. But, but I think it's like, wow. So much insight in the Bible just depends on knowing it. So, learn it. And then relearn it. And learn it again. And keep learning it. And keep studying. Keep meditating. And keep learning. Keep memorizing. Keep knowing it. And just learn more and more and more. There are maybe some better techniques for study. You know, I'm not against trying to use whatever technique works best for you, but that's not going to be the key. The key is going to be the effort.
Anything else uh, <coughs> on that rent? If you don't put the effort in, even what you thought you had, you're going to lose. Absolutely. We know that's true, don't we? Things you don't use, you lose. I could probably pick up a copy of Sports Illustrated and remember everything in the magazine, but <coughs> if it's where your heart is, you got to want to... You gotta want to learn, you gotta want to meditate on those things. Absolutely. We all know a lot about some things that we really care about. A lot. It may be quite different things, but we know a lot about uh, <coughs> certain mice <laughs> or whatever. You know? Uh, because we're interested in it. I mean, there's ways to learn it. If you really care about it, you learn it. People sometimes learn about things that I don't care a thing about. But they do. And, and you know, even people who probably are not endowed with overly high IQs learn a lot of things about things they care about. That's a whole lot more important than the IQ. You can have a genius who doesn't care about something, not going to know anything about it. Absolutely, and you know, my thing was math. I like math a lot. Some of you do, some of you don't. But, but you know, I got to where. I mean, I knew where on the page the problems and the formulas and the things that I needed to refer back to were. You get to where you know that math book. I mean, because you had to do that. I kept using different parts of it and going back and looking up this and looking back up that and, and all that. You, you, you learn it. I mean, because I like math, you know, and I want to do well in it. And so I got to where I knew that math book really well. I mean, math is kind of complex, uh, more complex in some senses than what the Bible is. But, but we can learn it when we really want to. Well, about 26 to 29. <clears throat> And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night <clears throat> and gets up by day, and the, spreeds, the seed sprouts and grows. How he, how he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. <clears throat> but when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Okay. That's an interesting little parable, and it's not found anywhere else, just here in Mark. About this man. What does the man do? So scatter seed on the ground. And then what happens? Grows. He goes to bed and he gets up and he goes about his business and the seed sprouts and grows. That's interesting. How did the seed manage to sprout and grow? He doesn't know. Yeah. It sort of happens. You know, he finds it. And then can it go does the rest? Now how does this growth process work for the seed? First stage at a time. Yeah. Kind of goes in an orderly step by step process, doesn't it? Blade, head, mature grain, finally the reaping. You you expect that. So, I mean this is just a little bitty story about planting a seed and getting a harvest. I mean, this is kind of like uh, Agriculture 101, you know. <laughs> People who don't even know like agriculture, you, know, you get the idea of this. So why does he tell us this? Show me that when you plant the seed of his word, he will help it grow. It's not up to us to make it grow. It's That's an important point. Absolutely. We don't need to try to manufacture a response. We plant the seed. We are not the one responsible for the growth. There's a lot of applications of that. It means we don't get the credit or the blame 
And it means that it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense when somebody comes and says, well, how can I make this person believe and obey the gospel? <coughs> if Jesus never found a way, we probably won't either. No, it's not, it's not up to us. We plant the seed. You teach. You declare the word of God. It's up to the soil there. We, we take ourselves as being too important. You know, well, they just couldn't get along without me. Well, of course they could. You know, now I do need to do my job, plant the seed. But I'm not responsible for the increase. That's one lesson. Do you have some thoughts on that? What exactly is the seed? It's interesting that we're we're studying what I would call the seed and studying about the seed and the seed. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. This is <laughs> the seed itself tells you about itself. Is yes. there? Is there? Uh, I mean, would you say there's a more base? I mean, the basic seed be the, just the fact that Jesus died for your sins and. Or yes. is there anything maybe I'm looking too deep? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there is kind of a, a priority order. I mean, Paul said, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas and so forth. That's First Corinthians 15. That's kind of what Paul thought of as kind of the basics. You see some of the sermons preached in the book of Acts. You see some of those basics. But ultimately, the seed involves the whole world. And so it's not inappropriate to, you know, teach first the fundamental principles. Made it. A seed contains all of the genetic programming that it needs to become a huge tree and to reproduce itself. And I think the same is true with this seed. It contains everything that's needful for a fully mature godly life. Exactly. They don't need us. They need this. They need the Lord. Our job? Put this in the, on the soil. You know, let them hear the word. I don't think that's the only point of this parable. What else do you see? I think that like um, he didn't expect it to grow so fast, <coughs> so we like we shouldn't be too careful because anything can happen at any time. Okay, it's not going to grow instantaneously. It's going to be step by step by step. Sometimes we're in too much of a hurry. We want to plow the field, plant the seed, reap the harvest, thresh the grain, and bake the cake all in one worship service. <laughs> <laughs> it work that way. You know, it's step by step. I mean, it is a growth process. We can't become impatient. Um, we can't become discouraged. People aren't mature Christians the day they step out of the water of baptism. They have a lot of ups and downs. You know, I've been spending some time with a, a brother in Brazil who's a fine preacher, and uh, uh, spent some time with him this most recent trip, and and it's been discouraging to him that uh, the converts in the town where he is right now aren't strong like the converts have been in the last couple of places where he's been. But one of the points I made to him, there's some truth in what he's saying. But also, one of the points I made to them, neither were they after they'd been a Christian for a year or two. <laughs> they grew too. And I remember some of the ups and downs with some of those people after they'd been a Christian for a few months or a year or two years. And now, after several years, yes, they are strong. <laughs> but it is that growth process. That's the part, that's what it takes. That's what it takes in our lives too. And you know, our sometimes our danger is we, we, we short-circuit the process. We don't keep growing. We're not mature, full-grown yet. we got more growing to do. God will reap the harvest when he decides we're, we're ripe. Comments and questions? It reminds me of what Paul said to Timothy about being a hard-working farmer and the fruits. Yes. Yes. Second, second Timothy 2. Other comments and thoughts?
Right now about 30 to 34. And he said, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and forms large branches, so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them, so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. Jesus was creative. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven is like what? Mustard seed. You wonder where he came up with that one. Well, what's mustard seed like? Really small. And what happens when you plant it? Comes really big plant. So how's the kingdom of God like a mustard seed? Going to start really small. <laughs> To get really big. Is that true? Maybe it doesn't take much of it to get to to produce a lot. Yeah. I was curious about that. If part of it maybe potency is the wrong word. But the influence that it has. This is God's seed and God's kingdom. And it can grow in ways that perhaps ordinary seeds would not. I think that is exactly right. I don't think this is just the natural law. I think this is a rather unusual case <coughs> of how much God can grow the kingdom from such small beginnings. I think you can see that in Jesus' day. If you'd have been a historian evaluating Jesus from the standpoint of the history of the world, Jesus was a semi-significant blip on the screen of backwater Palestine in the 30s AD for three or four years until he met an untimely and tragic end. You know, I mean, but he never really did the kind of things you'd think somebody would do that he'd be remembered by. Yeah, he was a, he was a charismatic figure, a local leader of some, you know, uh, religious people, but... But, you know, the Jews weren't important. He never wrote a book. He never traveled. You know, he never held office. He never went to school, you know, as far as education is concerned. I mean, you know, he never, he didn't leave behind any monuments. I mean, he didn't really, I mean, you look at that, if you'd have been a competent historian in that day, you'd have said, well, you know, he deserves honorable mention in Palestine for those three or four years. He, you know, he was kind of uh you know, I mean, we've seen figures in our country that sort of suddenly kind of surge in popularity and then flame out almost that quickly. And after a few years, you don't remember them. You certainly wouldn't. I, 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 don't, I, I hesitate to use this analogy because I certainly don't mean any disrespect to Jesus in this at all. I'm just saying, you know, how somebody would have seen Jesus in his day. Somebody maybe like Ross Perot. You know, 200 years from now, I mean, who's going to devote that many significant time in the history book to Ross Perot? He was pretty important for a few months, you know, and someone was kind of excited about him for a few months until we got to know him a little better. Uh, or whatever. But, you know, I mean, he just kind of burned out. I mean, I don't think now Ross Perot... Uh, endorsed a candidate? Because people even know who Ross Perot is. You just proved your point. <laughs> hey, that's a good question. Do you guys know who Ross Perot is? Yeah. Some of you do. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Hey, what was that? That was 92, I guess, though, wasn't it? Wow. <laughs> was that that long ago? That was Martin. Was it 92? Wow. Well, he was a third-party presidential candidate that briefly looked like he might win. You know, maybe in May, March, April, May. I mean, he was like ahead in the polls. Uh, rich and kind of eccentric sort of a guy. Uh, but And he did gain what? I don't know. Did he get 10% 10, 10 of the vote or something like that? 15? I don't know. I mean, he kind of 
But I mean, <laughs> some of the younger ones never even heard of it. You know? So it won't take 200 years for him to be Isn't that what you'd have thought Jesus would have done? He was just a little teensy tiny mustard seed in the overall view. But now, could you accurately portray the history of the world without giving significant mention to Jesus? Not accurately. I mean, the, the things that Jesus began has had great impact. Even some of the perversions of it have had great impact. I mean, you take away Jesus from the history of the world, wow, wouldn't things change? It's hard to imagine what the world would be like if Jesus hadn't come. God grew a huge plant out of a little mustard seed. I think the lesson for us is we're in the same boat. You say, well... I'm nobody. I can't really do anything. What little bit of teaching the gospel I could manage to do in my lifetime with my feeble abilities won't. It's it's worthless. I might as well not even try because it's not going to amount to anything. No! It won't amount to anything in our strength and our power, but we are serving the God who makes a tree out of a mustard seed. He can take our little bit of what we can do and make something worthwhile out of it. I think that's the lesson. Comments and questions. So, that's Jesus teaching in parables, at least in Mark. And uh, when we uh, when we study again a week from tomorrow, I'm going to Tuesdays from here on out for a while, I think. Um... But when we, uh, when we study a week from Tuesday, we're going to switch to a, kind of another whole theme. We're going to switch to the theme of Jesus doing things that were humanly impossible and hopeless. And we'll see that. So, uh, but thanks for joining in all that. That was uh, encouraging. And thanks for everybody being here. I realize some of you may have had other motives, but uh, glad you were able to show up for this and uh, come back sometime. We'll, we'll do this next Tuesday, and then I will be not here two weeks. And then Tuesday, like the, what, 17th, 16th, 17th? Okay. So next Tuesday, and then...